Let's get rolling. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called Alternate Reality as we began to examine the reality of the world that we live in and the reality of the world around us and the reality of the world that the Christian born-again believer should be experiencing, should be living in, should be walking in. And we looked at the word reality in the definition. It says the world is the state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. We're looking at oppositions. We've got the world that we see around us, which is a reality. There's no question about it. It is a reality. But there is something greater than that. The one who caused, the uncaused first God, that, or cause being God, has created all of this in a world that we can see, we can touch, we can feel. When Adam and Eve were created, the world that was existing then was one of which God was a part of, that he existed with them, he fellowshiped with them. When they fell, the whole world changed. There's this veil, if you will, that kind of separates the spiritual world from the physical world around us. The veil will at one point be lifted, it'll be non-existent, but at this point in time, this is where we are. But what happens is that the world that we live in is not dictated by the reality of what God has said. The world that we live in runs on a sort, a, a sort of, a, I guess, government run by somebody else. You see, he talks about the God of this world, that he is in control, implying that this isn't God's domain, so to speak, but that God's kingdom is greater, bigger, better over all of that, and that is the reality that you and I should be walking in, and unfortunately, we are not. We are existing, we're getting along, we're so focused on the natural that we miss the supernatural. Well, now, when we hear the term supernatural, we always think of like crazy stuff that's going on. But it's not so much that, it's that the supernatural world, in other words, something superior to nature, is based on God's Word. And what God's Word said is what matters. Our opinion, if it is not grounded in truth, not grounded in reality, is nothing more than an opinion. But when something is true across the board, then we can depend upon it. In John chapter 17, verse 13, he says, But now I have come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by your truth. So we see the dichotomies here. The two individual worlds. That those followers of Christ are in this world but not of it. That world hates them. From this moment on we've done nothing but try to get along with them. But they hate you. They hate me. They hate all born again believers because we are not of that world. We are separated, and because we are not of that world, we are not trying to get along with that world. We are walking by a set of guidelines that God has established, and that is our reality. So there's a difference there. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought, also, uh, ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. So, as we know, we were created in the image of God. That means we are his representative, his imager, an ambassador. We are in a world that is not our own. In fact, you and I are a part of a kingdom 
that is not on this earth. At one point, this earth will all be destroyed. God will recreate a new heavens, a new earth, and then, then we will be with God forever. But at this point, we are now ambassadors walking on a planet that does not belong to us, that we are not a part of, if you will, because you and I are a part of a higher reality, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, he who says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. That means what Jesus said, what Jesus did, how he acted in every situation ought to be what we are doing. All of it. Not part of it. Not the cherry-picked parts that feel good that are easy to accept and easy to swallow. It amazes me today that the biggest thing that we are confident in as a society, I don't just mean believers, is salvation. Like, eternity on the line, we're so confident I can do whatever I want, be whatever I want, and act however I want, and yeah, God, I'm going to be in heaven, I'm a good person, or whatever the case may be. We're so confident in eternity, we're less confident in what we're in right now. It's amazing to me. But what we've got to understand is what we've looked at is Jesus didn't arrive on this earth as God, all-knowing, all-powerful. He grew in his understanding. We saw this in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. So he grew in his understanding. He grew in what the will of his father was. He grew in his understanding of how God worked, what his expectations of God should be. He grew in his understanding of the authority that had been given to him. He grew in every way that you and I should be growing. We are not just born again and then like, whoo, we got it all figured out. That's not what happened. It's no different than your child. When they come out of the birth canal, they're not like, hey, where are the keys of the car? I'm going out tonight. Right? That's not what's happening. They grow in their understanding. Do you realize that if they came out all-knowing, all-powerful, and everything like that, your life as a parent would be so much easier. Right? You no longer had to say, did you brush your teeth? And when they say yes, then you're like, did you really brush your teeth? Did you use toothpaste? Like all the things you have to go through to make sure to keep that little human being alive and not smelling bad, to keep all them teeth in their head the way they're supposed to be, you would have to do. But you have to do it. But spiritually speaking, it's the same thing. When we're born again, we don't have it all figured out. We grow, but what happens is when we're no longer seeking truth but simply happiness, we will stop in our growth. We will accept the status quo as normality. That's not the case. Jesus' progression as he went through water, water to wine, impressive, calming storm, super impressive. Walking on water, really impressive. Okay? He grew in all of this, but how did he grow in that? Was it this light from heaven that shined down and says, oh, Jesus, here's a list of things you're going to do and be able to do? As we saw, as, as we began to work through this, he learned about who God was, who he was in relationship to God, who the enemy was, how God moved in the life of his people through the reading of Scripture. That's how he came to understand it. No different than you and I. He would go back and he would read 
about these stories in history. This is people's history. Again, it's like you and I reading about the founding fathers and the different battles and the stories that took place and all of that. We're like, man, that's crazy what went on. Paul Revere, right? I mean, these are things that we read and we're taught in school and stuff. That is his life. He was taught these things. He was reading these things. And as he was doing it, he's just probably coming away amazed. He's like, man, look how God moved. Did God ever waver in any way? No. What he said he would do, he did. Without exception. Good and bad. You see, what you see will determine what is real to you. When he was reading this, and we went through some of these, the idea of the 12 spies, there was two different viewpoints. God had promised him to go into the land. Everything that happened prior to that was about all the proof that you would need that God is going to make this happen. You came out of bondage through a number of plagues going against the gods of Egypt. Then you go through the water on dry land, pretty impressive. Then the army following you gets swallowed up by the water, still doing all right. Now it's time to go into the land that God had promised Abraham forever ago. What do you got to do? You got to go into it. That's it. Doesn't matter who's there, God gave it to you. What did they do? Not go into it. They send out 12, 10 come back, like, have you seen them people? They're massive. We can't do this. Two of them are like, uh, hello. God said we could go. Two different viewpoints. A natural viewpoint is something completely overwhelming that we cannot do. But here's the other side of the coin. God said to go do it, so therefore we should go do it. We can do it. God said we can do it. There's no question about it. It's God who's faithful. And what happened? We know what happened. You see, Jesus read that story. Then you get to the story we read about David and Goliath. And the idea of, of the entire army of Israel being too afraid of what was going on. They couldn't handle this giant, this guy, massive, coming against God himself through the nation of Israel. That no man wanted to go up against him. And yet a young David who delivered cheese. Remember why he was there. He was bringing the cheese, baby. I would have loved David if I had been there. He's like, whoa, why, are, why is he still talking? Why are you all not handle this? But he wasn't afraid. He said, the God who delivered me from the hand of the bear and the paw of the lion, he will deliver you into my hand this day. And then I'm going to cut off your head and I'm going to carry it back to Jerusalem. It's going to be pretty sweet. No question, no wavering. Why? It wasn't a based on what he could do. It was based on what God had said. It didn't matter what he was seeing. Then we get to the idea of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the whole story there is we're going through this, realizing that they flat out told Nebuchadnezzar, listen, you need to understand something. We will not bow. If you throw us into the fire, God will deliver us. But if you don't, you need to know we're not going to bow. And why were they so confident? Because God had promised them. Promised the nation of Israel. You keep my commandments, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. They were there as a result of not keeping the commandments, but yet they were staying faithful to what God had said. And from all intents and purposes, what we read and see, they were the only three that were there that were not bowing their knee. Most people, including today, would just say, listen, just bow down. You don't have to mean it. Just go through the motion. But God has said, don't do it. So they didn't do it. And it could have cost them their life. But God said, I will protect you. And so they were confident in that. So it's like, throw us in. God will save us, and that's exactly what happened. There's a difference between what God said and what I see. And guys, we could do this, oh my goodness, we could go weeks and weeks and weeks looking at these stories 
of history captured in the pages of Scripture and saying, okay, this is what God had said, but this is what they saw. How were they moved? Were they moved strictly by what God said or were they moved strictly by what they saw? Because what you see is not the reality that is dictated to you and I. When you are a born-again believer, you are a part of a higher kingdom. This is what Jesus was reading. This was the reality that he walked in. They were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having authority. Why? Because he was so confident. It wasn't just because he was Jesus, and that's how we think. Certainly, that's an aspect of it, but he was so confident. You see, the part that we miss is you and I are sojourners in this world. Would you agree with this statement? Jesus was a sojourner on this earth. Came down from heaven. He was never a part of this world, so to speak. What's the difference between what he did and what we do? The answer is nothing. Yes, we are not the Son of God, okay? If somebody comes up to you, I just want to let you know that I am the Son of God. You can walk away from that person, okay? We are sojourners on this planet. Here, as a time, the kingdoms of earth could not compete with God's kingdom. Then, they cannot compete with God's kingdom now. Now, I want to show you guys some pictures, okay? I like illustrations. I'm very visual. Let me see if you guys kind of pick up on a theme here, but if you'll go to the first picture. Now, when you see this picture, what do you think of? Amish. Why? Yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's obvious. But you see the buggy in the background. You see the hats and the clothes. I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious, right? We've all seen it. You guys, what I find hilarious, all right, and this is just me. This is a sidebar to this. This information's free. You're not paying extra for it. But, you know, they can't drive can ride in it as long as somebody else who's not Amish drive it. Have you ever seen some of these construction crews? They have a guy who is hired who is not Amish that his whole job is to drive them to the job site and back from the job site. And while they're working, that guy's usually sleeping in the truck. I just find that hilarious. I don't know. Just call me crazy. Okay. But you get that. There is a distinguishing mark about them that's very obvious the second you see them. How about this one? What would you assume that this person is? Why do you say Jamaican? I mean, you're right. I mean, the look, right? The hat, you know? He doesn't look like Jimi Hendrix, but he's close. All right? What about the next one? What would you assume this is? Jewish. Absolutely. Why do you say that? There's not a yarmulke to be seen. Well, yeah, he's got the hat. He's got the, the, the beard. They're holding the Torah scrolls. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I didn't have to explain this to you. How about this one here? Oh, you're close. Think of the other door knockers. Could have been, it was 50-50, right? If you could have read the name tag and it said elder, you'd have known. Now, these guys, what is so distinguishing about them? Well, one, you see they're young, and two, what do they do? They go on a two-year mission. So you got your sister missionaries on, on, on my right, it would be your right as well. And then you got your, your gentleman missionaries there. And so what do they do? They go around. They're distinguishing marches. You see them, and what do you typically see? Short sleeve, white t-shirt, tie, oftentimes walking with a backpack, perhaps riding a bike, if they so choose. And they're on a mission. What is the mission? To spread the gospel of the Latter-day Saints. Okay? How about this one here? Muslim. Yeah, no question. No question. Piece of cake, right? How about this last one? Right. Right piece of cake. Did you guys struggle with any of these? 
not hard. What do they all have in common? The commonality between them is that the reason they dress the way that they do and they talk the way that they do, and if you talk to these people, they all have a certain dialect or, or terminology that they use. The reason they're doing the things that they do is because where they're from, whether that just be, you know, the land that they come from or the belief system that they held, it dictates how they live, how they act, how they dress, and how they carry themselves out in public. Think about that. We didn't struggle at all. We could have done a whole bunch more. I even thought about throwing a red hat lady up there just for fun. But you all would have known, right? As soon as you see the older lady with the big red hat, what do you know? Well, if you're a server at a restaurant, you know they're not going to tip. That's what you know. <laughs> I've been told that by multiple people, so it must be something to it. But the thing is, is like when you see them, there's distinguishing marks. They, they wear that because they necessarily want to. No, it has nothing to do with necessarily what they want. Maybe they do. But they are pleasing God, at least they believe so, by what they say and do and act. and believe. It's this deeply held conviction that forces them to wear these things, to act this way, to live the lifestyle that they have. Does anybody really want to be Amish? At first it sounds great. Then you realize there's no air conditioning. There's no indoor plumbing. I don't like any of that. So again, it, it seems appealing, but that is the distinguishing mark that as soon as you see them, you know it. Now, if I were to ask you this, what does a born-again Christian look like? What picture would you put on that? And the answer is it depends. Because if you ask society, and if any of us do this today, if we were to go to a restaurant right after service today, which we only have one option here in town, so we'd have to leave town aside from that option, and you see a bunch of people that are dressed fairly nice, that are sitting there eating about 12, 12 30, what assumption do we all just make? Well, they just left church. That's why they're dressed that way. Is that true? We don't know. We'd have to ask them. But we make that assumption. There was a time in life that if you went to church, what did you do? You put on your Sunday best. Did that mean that you were a Christian? No, of course not. It means you got dressed up on a Sunday and you went to church. So what is the distinguishing mark of a believer? Is how we dress tell us if we're a Christian? No, not necessarily. Although there are things in Scripture that do talk about that. It's how we carry ourselves. You see, keeping in mind that we are sojourners in a land that is not their own. Do you, you notice that? Like Amish is an example. They live in th their own societies. They have interactions with the, I'll call it the regular world. I don't know what else to call it, but I don't mean it to be derogatory in any way. But they never change what they're doing. In fact, they have something called a rumspringa. You familiar with that? It's where that every uh, person about 18 years of age, I think, gets the opportunity, they go off the farm, and they go out in the real world, and they make a choice during that time. And they either live in the real world the rest of their life, or they come back. But it's their opportunity to leave and go see and experience life like you and I have. 95% of them, I think, come back. Most people are like, are you kidding me? How could you possibly come back? Most of them do. They don't know anything different, and they... Don't hate their lifestyle. You see, all of these people are dictated and moved by what they truly believe to be true. But for a born-again believer, how we live and how we act is dictated through the pages of Scripture. And as we're reading this and we're, we're talking about this, it's like there's not necessarily a look to them. 
there is a way that they carry themselves that should be different. You see, you can get a bunch of old guys around with beards, that doesn't make them Jewish. They might be, but it doesn't make them Jewish. Israel was always to be separated as a nation, to be different and distinguishing from every other people group. That never changed. Believers are sojourners on the earth. We are not of this world. We are separated in every way, both spiritually and naturally. What we say and what we do and how we carry ourselves should be completely different than the rest of the world. We should not blend in easily. So let's look at a few passages here. I want to look at Exodus chapter 12. We're going to jump around a little bit today. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So now you kind of know the context, right? What's going on? We're getting ready for the Passover. They're getting ready to leave, okay? So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, how much money would you be willing to pay to get the people out that have caused all this chaos over the last however many weeks? About anything you had to, right? So they're going to leave rich, verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, and about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, and a great deal of livestock. Now that mixed multitude, do you know what that means? Mixed multitude means non-Jewish. A combination of Jewish people with non-Jewish people. Now remember how this was. You had the Israelites and everybody else. Everybody else was a Gentile. Israelites were the chosen people of God. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. That sojourn, meaning what? They were in a land that was not theirs. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. What's a foreigner? A not Jewish person. If you were not born a Jewish man, woman, child, whatever, you could not partake of the Passover. It was exclusive. Verse 44. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you, who's a stranger? It's a not Jewish man, right? See, you're picking up on the trend here. 
When a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And you shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Now, this is interesting, because we're talking about the Passover. And who is allowed to partake of the Passover? Only Jewish people. But the hired ser- or the, the purchased servant, which was indentured servitude, or the stranger could partake, but what did they have to do? They had to be circumcised. Now, what was circumcision? It was the sign of the covenant. You see, this was the beginning phase of which an outsider could join the nation of Israel, but they had to do a couple of things. And without spending all the time going through that, because we've talked about this before, this is the basics. They would have to come, they would have to put themselves into covenant with God by becoming circumcised. They would have to reject all of their gods. When I say reject, it's repenting from a changing of their mind that Yahweh is the one true God. And they would have to acclimate themselves to the culture by keeping of the commandments and doing all these other things. At that point, when they came in, the circumcision was the last part of this. At that point, they were to be looked upon as if they were a native-born Jewish person. They were in covenant relationship with God at that point. And therefore, the natural-born Jews were not to look down upon them, were not to treat them in any different way, because it was as if that they were born. So therefore, one law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. In other words, when you've done these things, it is one law. Not a law for you and a separate law for them. It is coming into one. This is how they entered into covenant relationship with Yahweh. You guys get that? We had sojourners in Israel, in Egypt. They flee. Keeping of the Passover. Now, sojourners and the mixed multitudes that followed them had to follow a certain set of rules in order to be into relationship with God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statuses and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. Okay, so you see what's going on here. Remember, Deuteronomy is basically Moses' kind of last sermon, if you will, telling them, like, be, be paying attention. Verse 2, you should not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. And you need to go read what happened there. Verse 4, but you have held fast to the Lord your God, are alive today, every one of you. Verse 5, surely I have taught you statutes and judgment, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now that's powerful. What led for the people to say that? It was the keeping and observing of the laws of God. Then this great nation is wise and understanding people. Verse 7, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgment as are in all this law which I have set before you this day? 
Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, I will let them hear my words, and they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. You see, the separation of the nation was to do what? It screamed to the entire world. So you had Israel, and you had everybody else, that God was near to these people. What other nation is there that God is so near to as the Lord is near to us? There wasn't one. You see, the gods of the other nation could not compete with Yahweh. When they came out of Egypt, it was a a condemnation from Yahweh to the gods of Israel, or excuse me, the gods of Egypt, showing that he had greater authority than they. They sacrificed to these. They lived their lives in a way that it was very obvious that they were Egyptian. It wasn't just how they looked. How they looked was dictated by what they believed. But these sojourners, as Israel was, was to stay faithful to God. Now as they enter into a land of promise, they were to do what? They had to reject and not take on any other God. They couldn't marry the wives from the foreign land, lest their heart be turned away from God. At all times, everywhere they went, they were a separate nation that no other nation had God near to like them. But anybody was welcome to come in. There were strings attached. You had to reject everything. You had to repent from your ways. You had to enter into covenant by becoming circumcised and keeping the commandments. You didn't just come in and say, hey, I'm an Israelite now. I believe in Yahweh. Think about Jesus and the rich man. Go and sell all that you have. It's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Why did he say that? Because that man wasn't willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. We talked about this last week when the pearl of great price, when he found it, he went and he sold everything he had. The kingdom of heaven is like, or a kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field. And when he saw it, he went and sold everything he had to come back to that. You see, the way we enter into covenant relationship with God today is the same in which they did then. The difference being is that from a spiritual standpoint, the sacrifice has been made. We no longer go through physical things. It's a change of the heart. When your heart has changed, you will no longer want to look like this world. You will no longer want to be like this world. You will do things that will separate you. You will make decisions that will separate you. We had no problem seeing and making a distinguishing remark about any of the people we just saw. But when you see a born-again believer... Is there something that looks different about them? And the answer is maybe. Because certainly there are places you would not expect to find a born-again believer. And there are certainly words that wouldn't be coming out of a born-again believer's mouth. And there would certainly be actions that a born-again believer wouldn't take. But those are all moral questions. But let's flip it on its head. What would they do? If they were truly born again, in covenant relationship with God, filled with the Holy Spirit, what would they be doing? What Jesus did. They'd be doing what Jesus did. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, I want you to see how this idea continues. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, 
Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't that interesting? Because what did Peter just say? You, as a sojourner and a pilgrim, meaning one who is not of this world, abstain from your fleshly lust. The things that your flesh wants are the things of this world. You abstain from them. Everybody else is doing this. You don't do this. Those war against your your soul. Conduct yourself honorably among whom? The Gentiles, which were these unbelieving nations. So that by your good works, by the things that they see you do and the things that they see you say, they will glorify God. Do you guys see this? You see, as a born-again believer, you've got to understand yourself. That you are separated by God. You are a part of the kingdom of heaven. You are not a part of the kingdom of this earth. Therefore, you should not talk like, you should not act like. We should not justify any of the behaviors that are going on. We should not try to please these people. We should not try to make ourselves more tolerable towards sin because we are separated from that. When it is easy to get along with those who are followers of the kingdom of this earth, we have got a problem. Because Jesus did nothing but rub people the wrong way and show them the truth. And you and I should be doing the same. But it goes beyond that. Yes, everything is seasoned with love. But love speaks the truth. And so as we go through our lives, we're like, okay, why do we do the things we do? Do you realize, and I bet you guys could think about this, all of you could find something better to do today than be here right now. It takes some effort If you have children, it takes a lot of effort. If you've got grandchildren staying with you, it takes an enormous amount of effort to get them hellions out the door. You can say amen. It's okay. I get it. You see, when you're a parent, you're with them all the time. You don't know anything different. But when you've escaped that reality for a while and it comes back into your world, you're like, oh, my goodness. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, that's right. You see, that's what I'm saying. Like, it takes effort. Could we find something else to do? Absolutely, but why do we do this? Because we know what Scripture says. We know it's important. We're equipping it. We're preparing ourselves. It takes effort to go and talk to somebody about the gospel. It's easier to not talk to somebody about the gospel. But why do we do it? Absolutely. Why do we lay hands on the sick? It's easier to not do it. It's easier to just like, oh, thoughts and prayers. Right? Because we're supposed to be doing it. What Jesus did we're supposed to be doing. Look at First Chronicles chapter 29. I want to show you this. Because this will kind of reiterate the point a little bit. First Chronicles chapter 29. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to read for a bit. It says, Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and he's inexperienced. The work is great because the temple is not for man but for the Lord God. So what are they getting ready to do? Build the temple. David's not going to be able to, but he's going to make sure it gets funded. Solomon's going to act it out. Verse 2. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might. Now, who's talking here? This is David. For everything he's had, he's prepared for the temple. Gold and things to be made of gold. Silver for things of silver. Bronze for things of bronze. Iron for things of iron. Wood for things of wood. Onyx stones. Stones to be set. Glistening stones of various colors. All kinds of precious stones and marble slabs. In abundance. Moreover, 
Because I have set my affection on the house of my God. I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. My own special treasure of gold and silver. 3,000 talents of gold. Of the gold of Ophir. The 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses. The gold for the things of gold and the silver for things of silver. And for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Now look what he's saying here. It's going to take a lot. David is getting towards the end of his life and certainly the end of his reign as king. But he's making sure this is all ready. Why is it? Because God wanted a temple, a house for himself. No longer would it be sojourning. They're going to have a land now, a place to go. Remember, the tent is no longer being used. And so David, with everything that he had, he's gathered all of this stuff. Then he took his own stuff. In his twilight years, when he's in retirement, and he should be on the golf course, and going on vacations, he's taken everything that he's had to put into this, because it's important to God. And if it's important to God, then it's important to David. And then he turns to all the people, and he says, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? In other words, who's with me? Look at verse 6. Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. You notice it says the word willingly. Does that mean that they had to? No. Did they have a choice to make? Yes, they did. They didn't have to. They weren't coerced. There weren't armed guards standing there waiting, saying, uh, drop another coin in. Just one more. You'll be good. Right? They offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And just in case you're wondering what that measurement is, it's a lot. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord into the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly. Because with a loyal heart, They had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. These people are so moved by what God wanted that they willingly gave all of this, we'll just call it money, to make sure that the temple could be built exactly how God wanted it. Verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom of the Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now, what did he just say? All that is in heaven and all that is in earth is yours. Did they act like that was true? Absolutely they did. Because they brought willingly, God, this is yours. You take it. I wouldn't have it. How did they get that wealth to begin with? When they left Egypt, God gave them favor. They left filthy rich. God gave it to them. God, this is yours. You take it. If God gave it to you and God tells you to give it away, can God give it to you again? Absolutely. Only if you believe what he has said. Otherwise, you wouldn't do this. Verse 12, both riches and honor come 
from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you. And we praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? He's asking the question, who are we that we can willingly do this? For all things come from you. And of your own, we have given you. His mindset was God gave this. This is his. I am just simply a what? I am a steward of the resources God has given me. Could they have spent that on themselves? Could they have gotten a really nice boat for some of that? Absolutely. Could you imagine him pulling the boat with a camel to drop it in the water? That'd be awesome. They could have done anything they wanted because while they were stewards with it, it was in their control. But their heart was where God's heart was. They knew where it came from and they willingly gave it. For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Watch verse 15. We are aliens and pilgrims before you. As were all our fathers, our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. Now stop for a minute. Are they still aliens and pilgrims? No, they're in the land. They're in Jerusalem. This is the land that God gave them. Are they still an alien? No. Not technically. But he just said that we are, just as our fathers were. What's he talking about? We're not of this world. We're of your kingdom. Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. Who was coerced? Nobody. With a joyful heart they gave. Verse 18, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of your thoughts, of your heart, of your people, and fix their heart towards you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. They fell down in worship after giving all of this because who did it belong to? You see, they were sojourners. Like, listen, this is not the economy of the kingdom of heaven. When you hear somebody talk about any building, any church, like, well, you know, if they weren't, you know, I remember hearing something about a church putting copper gutters on. And somebody was like, you know, they should really be feeding the poor with that money and not putting on copper gutters. There's two parts to that. First of all, who does that sound like in the New Testament? Sounds like Judas. Not sure that's who we want to emulate in any way. The second part of that is if God provides the money for copper gutters, can he not also provide the money for feeding the hungry, taking care of people? My third question always is like, well, why do you live in such a nice house then? Why do you drive such a new car? You know, if you bought a car for $500, you could take the excess money that you have left over and give it to the poor too. They never like that part, but be that as it may. You see, when your heart belongs to God, everything on this earth becomes strangely dim. It doesn't matter. Whatever wealth has been accumulated can be given away as God has dispersed it because it ultimately belongs to him. And guess what he can do? He can bring it back in. I mean, that's the thing. But to do that, you have to truly believe 
that I'm a sojourner on this earth. That my kingdom that I'm a part of is not the kingdom of this earth. Otherwise, we would do what the kingdom of this earth does. And what is that? We hoard. We keep. I got to have this for a rainy day. I got to make sure I'm investing. You would not give with a generous heart if you did not believe that it is God who meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory. That is a distinguishing mark of a believer. We're not coerced. We don't have to do it. It's our choice. But we are stewards with what God has provided, and we will answer to God for that, not just with money, but with everything. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 13. I'm almost done. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What were they? Who are these talking about? These are all the people that came before. This is Hebrews chapter 11. They call it the hall of faith. All of these that came before, what did they confess? That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They had not seen the fulfillment of the promises that God had made. They knew they were coming. And they were strangers and they were pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God as he has prepared a city for them. Nothing's changed, folks. You and I are sojourners. You see, no matter what, they stood out. But it wasn't just what they did. They did what they did in response to what God had said. Everybody, all those pictures we looked at, those people live the way they do, talk the way they talk, in response to what they think is the right thing. But we have a standard of truth that we use. We don't get to change it to fit the culture. And sometimes, guys, it would be a lot easier if we could. But you and I, as born-again believers, are the imager of Christ on this earth. And we need to be aware of that, that we are sojourners on this planet. And with that comes the authority that comes from God. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2, that he is the head and we are the body. We are his hands and feet going out there. We are walking around like Jesus did himself. So what should we be doing? 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. It is time that we focus on what God said, not what we see. We need to think like where we're from and not where we're at. We have got to get back to the positioning of what God has said. It's so crucial. We live in a dirty world. Morally, we live in a dirty world that is at a contrary nature against what God has said. We don't change God's word to fit this world. We're not part of it. We don't try to make them accept us and love us and just, can't we all just get along and just simply coexist? And the answer is no. We should be sandpaper. I'm not talking about being a jerk. There's a big difference. But we should be sandpaper. And when they're saying, if you just bow down, listen, the music's going to start, just bow down. They'll leave you alone. You don't have to mean it. Just do it. Or as you're walking through and it's like, just, just pinch that incense and just burn it. You've got a family to think care of. Uh, I mean, if they kill you, who's going to take care of your family? Well, right is right and wrong is wrong. We are sojourners on this planet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. 
And we thank you that our entire life should be guided by every dictate that you have put out there. And so, Lord, I pray that you quicken our hearts. That we no longer try to appease this world. We no longer try to look and sound and, and live such as this world. But we will be separated in every aspect to live our lives in a way that keeps you at the forefront. Knowing who we are, knowing what you've said, knowing the position that you put us in. Lord, that we may walk like you walked. And so, Lord, I thank you that you are opening up doors of opportunity. That each and every day that we can live our life to the fullest to spread the gospel. And, Lord, that we will not back down from anything that comes against it. But we will stand boldly knowing that truth will prevail. We give you all the glories in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.